Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 54 of the Coach's Journey podcast. Robbie here, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the show the fantastic Toku McCree. When Toku first learned of his purpose, he wondered where it had come from and who had said it, even though he was alone with his own thoughts when it came to him. He describes in this episode of the show how that particular thought, when it arrived, felt untouchable and instilled in him the purpose that now guides him through his life and his work. Toku spent more than two and a half years living in a Zen monastery and his insights from his former life as a Zen monk permeate his writing, his creativity and his work as a renowned executive coach. And in this episode, we dive into Toku's forthcoming book, provisionally at time of recording, um, called The Zen Coaching Book, bringing, bringing all that all that knowledge from his time in the monastery and his practice beyond that and all the thinking he's done about coaching into one place. And he he responds really nicely and takes even further than, than I was going to, the, the challenge I spring on him partway through and reads aloud sections of, of the forthcoming book, um, which will be out in a few months. Um, and those sections cover things like how to allow your coaching style to evolve, how to avoid getting stuck in a rut, and how to invite clients to take the first step when they arrive at coaching with trepidation. So if you're struggling with your work or with finding your purpose, this episode explores ways to make that struggle meaningful and hopefully to guide you forwards towards satisfaction. We also talk about finding your creative voice and how to think about the body of work you're creating, bringing reverence to your work and finding satisfaction beyond the hustle. We talk about knowing when to challenge and when to encourage our clients. The six areas of mastery that Toku focuses on in his writing and in his coaching training, the coaching MBA, which he, he runs. So, so if you're interested in working with Toku, that's an amazing way to do that, or at least it sounds that way. Um, and we talk about how to view your coaching as art and how can that can guide you to do your best work. We talk a lot in the opening part of the conversation about the creative process around making hits or creating for ourselves. And we zoom in on how to uh, accept the times when our work is not our best and, and even explore the value in being willing to do bad work. Um, <laughs> and one of the reasons we get to this question of purpose, which I talked about at the start of this introduction, is because of a great question from one of the members of the Coach's Journey community. And if you join the community or become a supporter of the podcast at certain levels, then you get the chance to submit questions for guests, which I almost always fit in. If you're a regular listener, you'll have heard that a bunch of times. Um, so if you might be interested in joining in, in joining the community, which uh, involves being my client, you get it's part of it's a flexible group coaching program designed to be affordable, designed to meet people really where they are with their coaching. Um, you get to be coached by me. You get to think about coaching with me and a group of other coaches um, you know, up to once a month, pretty much, if you become a full member of the community. Um, and everybody in that community is focused on thriving as a human while they create a thriving coaching business. Uh, if you might be interested in that, check out thecoachesjourney.com slash community. If you might want to become a supporter of the show where you give a certain amount of money every month and you get various things that are hopefully interesting to you in return, um, as well as knowing that you're helping the Coach's Journey podcast reach new people and continue, then um, then check out patreon.com slash the Coach's Journey. And again, for the community, it's thecoachesjourney.com slash community to, to read loads more. Um, so thank you to everyone who's ever supported the podcast and my work through through one of those methods particularly today to alex witten david norris joey owen and kusum ravindranath and uh yeah i hope that you might consider joining us at a community call sometime soon but before that um can't wait to get into this conversation with toku if you haven't already you might be interested to go back to episode number 15 which is the first time toku was on the show and as you'll hear me talk about in a few minutes with toku by some measures i think is is the most popular episode ever of the coach's journey podcast um and in that one we get into how toku came to coaching we talk more about the zen monastery in different ways and and we talk quite a lot about uh, sales with honor which is the place that 
the, the, which is the other book, which as you'll hear Toku talk about in a minute, is, is coming at some point from him. But listening back to this episode, I was just really taken by how excited I am for, for this book, the one that he's talking about in this episode to come out, hearing him read it back, um, being reminded of the power of it when I when I read um, the advanced copy that, that he sent to me. Um, you know, I was just really reminded how powerful this can be and how he is in so many ways a singular voice in the world of coaching. So it's an absolute pleasure to have him back on the show, to give him a chance again to explore new thinking um, and to bring what I hope will be lots of insight to you um, as a coach, as it was for me. So without further ado, um, let's get into the conversation that I had with the fantastic Toku McCree. Toku, welcome back to the Coach's Journey podcast. Hey, it's great to see you again, Robbie. It's been a, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been about two years, um, I think, since we last recorded. Has it been two years? Yeah, so it was in the middle of the pandemic. That's part of how to remember, like, which is like a bit of a relief to me that that now feels like a long time ago rather than feeling like it just stretched over the whole of the past. Um, Isn't it weird that the pandemic felt like it was sort of like this infinite period of time? And then when I look back on it, somehow like that whole period gets compressed very, very small because it was so kind of single note in a way. Yeah, like a great example in so many ways um, of how time is not is not linear, right? It's not, mm. or at least our experience of it isn't. And you know, so much can change in a short space of time when you get something like that happen. And it can have this really elastic feel. Um, yeah, so it's about two years ago. And, and look, people who... People who have just coming to this episode, you don't, definitely don't need to go back and listen to that one. But if if you want to, listeners, like recommend it. In that episode, we get into a lot more of Toku's story. And actually, this is a thing I discovered recently, Toku. So I was interested in. So that, again, it's like a time warp thing for me as well. That was episode 15 of this podcast. Now, I oh, only wow. release monthly because that's how I make it sustainable to present. Mm-hmm. But um, we're now on episode 50. So that gives a sense of like, oh, it feels like wow. that feels like a long time ago to me. That, sorry, episode yeah. 50 is the one that's just, uh, people who are confused, is the one that's just come out as we're recording this. Um, Got it. And, but what was interesting is I've been interested in the, like, a bit different to Tim Ferriss or Heather with 300 episodes and one every week mm. for years. But I was interested in like, I wonder what the patterns are. Like, how do I, how do I think about this body of work? And so I was trying mm. to find like, listens felt like a bit of a dull metric to me. And one of the metrics mm. I found you can get in some of the, in, I can't remember if it was Apple Podcasts or Spotify or somewhere, is you can find out which episodes have the, uh, or like what the average listen percentage of an mm. episode is. Mm. And what is interesting is this one was, the, the the first conversation that we had was the, had the second longest or the lo- pretty much equal longest. There was like 80 mm. and 79% was the average listen of wow. that first interview and for people who don't know it's like it's a long one it's like two hours 10 or something with with two hours of us talking and a little bit of intro and outro and that's kind of amazing because you've got to accept that in there are a bunch of people who listened to a bit and got distracted and never came back so mm. to then to still make 80 percent, that tells us something about that episode and, mm. and and the other one which was an interview with i did with marsha reynolds but it's you know mm. sort of like a real something about that conversation so hopefully oh, we can cool. We can go for like 83% on, on this. Yeah, well. I feel like I feel a little bit of pressure now. I'm like, I have to do, I have to meet, be as good as my past self, and, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and it's also interesting, of course, like it got me thinking about this kind of, uh, what art form, the podcast, especially mm. a long form interview. It's like, I wonder what it is, you know, mm. that means that that one, you know, and the one with Marsha, yeah, has people stay with it, like, mm. you know, and, and 
probably that maybe there's some people that soon will research it, but I bet it's one of those things that I bet just no one really knows yet. Yeah. Because podcasting is still so new. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, I think that's the, we're going to, I know we're going to talk a bit about kind of art and coaching and being an artist and creating all of that. And I think that is this interesting question that we, we ask when we dive into doing any creative work, which, you know, I think coaching is creative work. And then a lot of the stuff we do to support a coaching business, you know, whether it's social media or blogging or videos are creative. And there's often this tension between like, how do I make something that's really good, like really good art that I'm really proud of. And that also appeals to people. And, you know, um, I heard an interview with, with some musician and he's just like, I just make the stuff I like, but then I pay attention to what other people respond to. Right. And I just try to publish more of that, but he's always just creating more, what he, what he likes. And so it's interesting with this, with podcasting or coaching, you know, there can be a bit of like, I'm trying to mold myself to appeal to a popular audience Right. And I see a lot of people doing that. I mean, in the internet space in general, but in the coaching space in particular, um, or there can be this, like, I'm going to do what feels good to me and kind of ignore what other people want, which I think is all can be a bit myopic and maybe egotistical as well. And so there's just interesting tension in both in a coaching business, as well as in a creative work between the um, creating something that's really good, that really speaks and shares your voice, but is also has an impact and appeals to people. So I find that tension showing up all over the place, both in the work I do with coaches and in my own work. And it's a it's a question that's come up. And as I've moved into more creative work, and you know, I know you're an author yourself, so I don't know. I, I'm curious if you have thoughts on that. Actually, and I'm like, I'm like, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely do. Um, like one of my one of my thoughts as someone who's tried to think about that kind of process quite a lot is um, mostly um, people can trust more that the thing they're creating will appeal and should mm. be in the world. So mostly, mm. at least the people that I come into contact with are erring too much with the things they've made, including their coaching businesses, on the side of, I don't think this is good enough. I don't think people will be mm. interested in this. And mm. so can afford to go way further before they hit um, mm. the 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 too extreme the other way place. Mm. Um, as mm. a slight aside, but we'll see if it adds in, I just remembered this story that my dad told me about Neil Young. I haven't checked this, so it could be my dad making it up or getting the, the, <laughs> the, the singer wrong or something. But it, that it was something like um, the album after Harvest. So Harvest, people don't know, is like one of Neil Young's most famous albums. He did a yeah. tour of the album after Harvest, and everybody wanted the songs off Harvest, or they came partly for that because they were fans because of that. And he played the whole of – he didn't play a single song off it. He played the whole of his new album and mm. no hits – and then he got to the, and then he went off and he came back on for the encore. And then he said, now I'm going to play some songs you've heard before. And everyone cheers. And then he just played the new album in its entirety again. And that for me <laughs> is a funny story, but it's also, it's like, it's that, that's the like, that's the too far for me in, in too far. And I'm just going to create what I want. And I love what you said there about, mm. I'm going to create what I want. And I'm going to also pay attention to mm. what people respond to. Because mm. the truth is, you know, and there's all sorts of stories about this. This kind of Radiohead didn't play Creep for a long time. There's lots of like, and uh, you know, there are those echoes. It's like, actually, you can, in a way, in music, it kind of makes, I can kind of see it more clearly because the the producing versus performing might mm. have really different, um, you might make really different decisions about them. Mm. Because the way to create the perfect uh, concert environment, like the mm. truly amazing transformative experience might be different 
from mm. the way to create a new album, the transformative experience mm. through an album, because you know, no one wants to hear the same album recorded 10 times, but actually I'm considering going to see a, a, a singer this autumn that I, I haven't seen for 20, 20 years, maybe 10 years, uh, mm. 15 years, yeah, nearly 20 years, because I just want to hear one of those songs. I, I, I keep having this thought every time he tours, I need to hear that song again, at least one mm. more time. Mm. Right? So yeah, it's a very interesting tension to, to kind of bring in. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I was as you're talking about music, it's sort of like, and I've discovered this sort of in my own work as well. But when I've gone to concerts of bands that have been around for a long time, like I remember going and seeing Roger Waters, who's the bass player of Pink Floyd, and he played a bunch of stuff of his new album. But mostly, it's like you said, I went there to hear Pink Floyd music. That's why I went. Right? I didn't go there to hear like Roger Waters as an artist, and yet it's so different. When, um, when I go, if I go to a bar and there's a band that's playing that I don't know, the way I relate to and discover that creative work is so different because I'm really open, right? Or if I only know a couple songs by the band, right? I'm like discovering their new music where it's like, if I go to a Roger Water concert, like I just want him to play like stuff from the wall, right? That's what I, that's all I want. You know, I don't, I don't want to hear his new stuff because that's, that's not why I'm going. That's my relationship there. And I think it's interesting as a, as a coach you know, there's a lot in the world of, of marketing and niching, which is sort of like, kind of like, you know, what are your hits going to be as a coach or, or, or in your creative works, or what are your topics going to be that you're going to write about? And as you become successful, people start to come to you for those topics, right? And then you can get bored with those topics, right? And, and you can want to change. And so, and it's one of the things I, I notice a lot with new coaches, there's a lot of push to like, I should niche down or have an ideal client. And I really, I often encourage people, if you're a newer coach, to like just spend some time going out, almost like playing in bars, like the Beatles did this, right? They went out and just played in bars. Or if you're a writer, you're like, oh, I got to have some topics to write about. Or like, you know, I might, I need to blog. What do I blog about? I I really encourage people um, to just go out and just, you know, play in some bars, write some blog posts. Okay. If it's just really disparate topics or um, coach a bunch of different kinds of people, because there's a lot of discovery that happens in the doing, you know? that you won't discover if you try to limit yourself down. And I, I understand the sort of like typical marketing advice or typical creative advice about kind of pick a topic and focus on it. And that has some value. But I think that, you know, as you're kind of discovering what your creative voice is as a coach or or what your coaching voice is, you know, there's real value in, in just trying stuff and discovering and being open to like, oh, I, I may not be right here. You know, I might've thought it was career coaching, but I'm actually interested in I notice I'm really like coaching people who work at HR. That's the thing, you know, and being able to be in that creative process, more like you're listening to a band you've never heard before, rather than trying to find, you know, your greatest hits right away. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? Like, it's interesting as a metaphor, the greatest hits. It, it reminds me of another story. I don't know that I can't remember the details, but it's like, uh, I think it was a Hollywood studio and some big investors had just bought into it from another country, I think a different culture. So they didn't mm. know Hollywood. So they were kind of learning about it. And the, the, the executives or whatever, they say, well, look, I can't remember what the number is, but like roughly one in every four films that we make ends up making money or being the box office hit. And the investors, mm-hmm. of course, ask, well, why don't you just make those films, <laughs> right? Like just make the ones that make lots of money. But you like, of co- like inside the industry, inside anyone really mm. who's tried to create, mm. like it's not as simple as that. If it was as simple yeah. as that, we'd all be Shakespeare or the Beatles, and yeah. inst- and everyone would have been. But instead, it took something else. And I just got that the niching thing can be 
like trying to yeah trying to predict the hits try to oh, just I'm, I'm only going to make movies that that gross you know 10 million dollars nothing else or oh, i don't know 10 million dollars is probably a tiny amount of money but i'm only going to make the hits it's like that's just not how it works and you rob yourself of so much right so much opportunity to discover you know i i think that and this shows up a lot in the in the program around the coaching MBA, where people are like, I want to start blogging. You know, how do I write a really good blog post or how do I build an audience around this? And you know, now that I've gotten into moving off of blog, I mean, I've written a blog for I don't know, seven, eight years now. I mean, I probably have hundreds, thousands of blog posts at this point. And I'm I'm not sure I've ever had any hits. I've had some podcasts that people really like. I mean, that's probably been my biggest hits. That's one of the places people have found me a lot. But what I find is often for me, if I focus on like, what's the body of work I'm trying to create, that really helps. It takes the pressure off each individual piece. Um, but I, I do think that there's a, there's a natural artistic and creative discovery process that happens when you just continually engage in the work. Like, I'm sure this is true for you as well. Like listening to episodes of your podcast, there's a way in which the podcast kind of becomes itself over time, right? You had a vision of what it was going to be and there's ways in which that were true. And then the podcast has sort of evolved, right? And it starts to become its own thing. And so, you know, I think that as an, as an, as a coach, who's also artistic, who's also creative, who also writes, you know, there has been a natural evolution of my work, but by putting my attention on the, what's the body of work that I'm creating? Um, what is it I want to be thinking and talking about for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years? Rather than how do I write a blog post that goes, how do I make a viral TikTok video, which, you know, there's some value in putting your attention there. I think that for me, at least at first, and then often in kind of in the middle and at the end, putting my attention on this, what's the body of work? You know, how can I be engaged in this process of discovering my voice? To me, that's the sort of real juice that, um, especially if you're someone who, who does coaching and also wants to write a blog, make videos, produce courses, write a book, like... Putting your attention there, I think, helps you do the work necessary in order to be creative. And you might get a hit, you might not, but at least then the work gets created, right? Because if the work doesn't get created and doesn't get shared with the world, then no one gets to enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Toku, how do you think about the you personally, the body of work that you're creating? Mm. So it's interesting. I mean, part of why I came on the on the podcast is to talk about this this the first book that I wrote. But I've got two, and I've got three kind of creative projects that are like. So, so like I was going to say this, Toku. Like uh, I really hope this isn't going to happen this time because last time you were on the show, I was saying just before we switched on, I listen. I love when I have somebody on again. I love listening back to the last time we spoke. Mm. You were about to launch. You were just doing kind of beta program run for a different book, which, as far as I can tell, is not present out in the world anywhere and now you're back there essentially at the same stage with another book and it's like i've read this one like like, and we'll talk about it but um yeah i really hope this one gets out and one of the questions is i'll let you like i'm putting it on i'm committing i'm committing to doing it (laughs) well in a way otherwise this this episode is gonna so so 
for listeners, the book is going to come out. Well, we, we, we might talk about that. It won't be out when you listen to this. So otherwise, this is going to be like, I, I, in fact, now, now that we're going to do this, because I've read it, and we're going to talk about it. I kind of want you to never publish the book, because then we'll have this like beautiful, <laughs> like the only place that people will be able to get access to the Zen coaching book or, what, or whatever it'll end up being called, will be here on my show. And maybe it'll finally be my hit, Toku. Maybe this yeah. will be it, because I'll, I'll ride on your coattails, and it'll be like a bootleg <laughs> a recording of a song that you never put I'm on I'm hoping to write on your coattails. So, you know. um, um, so yeah, I was asking about body, body of work. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that, and it's interesting. So this book that we're, that we're talking about, I actually wrote before the book we talked about in the last episode. I mean, it kind of blows me away that, that I was writing that book or thinking about having it come out. So I, I wrote this book earlier before the pandemic. And the way that I, the way that I wrote this one, this Zen coaching book, was I realized that I was having this like block around publishing a book. I was like, if I publish a book, it has to be a bestseller. And how do I do that? And it all felt very intimidating. So I was like, okay, what's the simplest way I could write a book? Um, and you, your story around writing your book is actually very similar, right? This kind of twelve minute writing exercise you did, which I think is so great. Um, and so I, what the way I wrote the book was, I had a friend who was just getting started coaching, and I wrote him like kind of a letter every day for 30 days about coaching. And that's how the book got created. So, and then I sort of soft launched it and put it aside. I thought, okay, I don't want to, this is not like this big of a book. This isn't the main book I want to work on. I just sort of like put it on my website. You, if you were on my email list, you could buy it a couple of places. Um, and then I was working on the second book and then I sort of got stuck again on the second book. And I was like, okay, what's going on? I got really curious, like what's going on here with my creative process. And what I realized was that I had developed a level of mastery to publish blog posts pretty consistently, like put it out there, not worry about it. But when it came to books, there was a certain like preciousness I had of like, it has to be good. It has to be edited. And what is it? And so then I, I realized that part of what was getting in the way of the second book was that I hadn't really launched the first book. And so I had this sort of like, um, it's like my creative pipe started to get backed up. Right. It's like, well, the first one's sort of stuck in the pipeline and the second one stuck behind it. And my my newest project is I'm creating a tarot card deck for coaches where it's sort of like the tarot and it has coaching questions. So that's like, that's way backed up, right? Like that's the part of the probably gross metaphor. Like that's the part of the toilet that's overflowing at this point. And so I said, okay, I got to go back originally to this first, this first thing I created and really hone it and launch it and then get that out. And then I can do the next one. And get that out. And that's going to clear the space for the third project and the fourth project and the fifth project. But part of it for me was I didn't, I was having a hard time claiming and owning my identity as an artist, right? I, for a long time, I was like, well, I'm a coach and I do like writing for marketing purposes. Like that's, I blog because I market, that's my marketing. And, but I realized there was another part of me that, um, was very creative that I wasn't claiming that I wasn't owning. And I, I, I find this is actually very true for lots of coaches where they have a coaching part of themselves, but there's also this creative part. There's a writer or a video creator or a course creator or, or a, you know, um, sometimes a visual artist. And often that's sort of in the background in secret. And they go, well, you know, coaching, I can put that out there. That's a business thing. And this creative thing is not, it's not real. It's not legitimate. And so my journey ever since, you know, we recorded that podcast the last, you know, two years ago, has been a lot about claiming my identity as both a coach and an artist. And what does it mean to create art or to, another way I could say this is to coach at scale, 
right? Like the, I think there's a first level of coaching where it's, I coach with people one-on-one and what I'm really trying to do with both these books and ideally the tarot card deck eventually is I'm trying to coach people at scale. How do I coach people? How do I create transformation while I'm not in the room and not just at a blog, which is, you know, has a way that's sort of like coaching. It's in the moment I'm responding to things and but it's it's an artifact that I'm going to say, okay, this is an artifact of my voice, of the way I look at the world, of the transformation that I'm standing for, that I want to exist and stand the test of time in some way. And that intentionality has been has been tricky for me to claim. And um, so I've started to think about the body of work that I'm creating as kind of twofold. One, it's um, can I curse on your podcast? Am I allowed? Yes, to do please do, please do. Okay, great. Um, one is like I just want there to be cool shit in the world. So it's like my body of work is I'm making cool shit for the world, one. And then two, it's this expression of I want to create a thing that is it's like a it's a snapshot. It's an encapsulation of a certain voice, of a certain perspective that comes from me. That's a transmission that comes through me that I want to keep talking about again and again and again. So rather than the the next podcast or the next blog post, a thing that I I'm so confident about what I'm saying or so clear about this perspective that I can keep talking about it again and again and again. And I I think that that is actually incredibly rare in the world in which we have Instagram and TikTok where things just sort of always are changing to 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 put a stake down and claim this is part of my body of work. Um and then not to stop there but to keep creating because that's the other thing that happens is people get a hit, you know, I think the I think uh, Rich is coming out with a new book but like um, you know, he wrote the Prosperous Coach, and then yeah, and, you know, and in the nicest possible way, he's been saying he's coming out with a new book for the whole time that I've been I've known him. <laughs> and I, I haven't seen it. Like, well, yeah. I'll believe it when I see it. Like, I really yeah. mean it. Like, I I think about that. You know, every time I get an email on his list saying the new yeah. book's coming out this year, it's like, well, yeah, yeah maybe it's it's hard. I mean, and once you write a book like the Prosperous Coach, when it becomes a hit, I mean, anything, the, the risk is anything you're going to do after that might not be a hit. But I, I'm really committed to, in this phase of my journey, I have a little post-it note up here that says, I am a gentle, passionate artist. I take my art seriously, but I'm not creating to get anywhere. So that's my kind of mantra that I'm I'm sitting with. I am committed to being prolific as an artist and creating pieces of art. And, you know, it took me two years to kind of start that journey. And this book is sort of like, okay, this is the first the first thing um, that I'm putting out. And then the the sales book, which we talked about last time, will come out next. And then the tarot card deck. And um, this book, the first book, might actually be a series. So um, but I I was I got very excited about creating the art, but I didn't get excited about launching it. And now I'm getting excited about launching it. Like the how do I get as excited about the launching of the thing as I am about the creating of the thing? Because I'm very reliable to create. I have not been reliable to launch, which is why two years later, we're still talking about a book that's not out yet. <laughs> yeah. And they are different. It's a great frame. How do I get as excited about the the launch as the book? And I get that feel like I'm just remembering kind of, it's, it's great to be speaking to you again and just get that sense of like, ah, yeah, I'm like, I'm excited for your launch. You know, mm. like part of that as a, a part of your, uh, what would it be? I guess this would, this would be a reflection. It may not land, but it feels like a part of your, the thing that you do is to mm. really understand the process mm. so that you can then do it as well as you possibly can. Like that's a part of how you do these things. So I'm excited to mm. see when this book does launch, how that looks. Cause I like, it's a really beautiful book. Um, and I really mean that. I really, really hope that you do beat the resistance, right? 
because it's like, yeah. I mean, people didn't catch it. Rewind this conversation about five minutes or, or seven minutes to hear Toku like outlining the voices that when we're trying to courageously create something, we have all the reasons yeah. to not put something out. And, yeah. you know, I found myself, we'll maybe get into more in detail, but like, well, maybe we, I don't know, we'll go, let's see where we go. Maybe we go there now. Like, I want to give you a bit of feedback about it. Like I, I said that I didn't have any kind of, um, before we switched on, any like, here's how to improve this book feedback. I didn't feel like it needed it, but I can tell you the reader's experience uh, for me in, in kind of two ways. One is it felt like um, each of the 30, 31 practices in it, 31 chapters, um, I like I need probably, uh, you know, a few days with, you know, mm. at least. Like I need to like, I got a sense that the very simple book that I could sit with using for a long time. And I caught myself knowing we were speaking today, I caught myself sitting with, uh, I can't remember which day it is, but being in awe of the clients mm. I was speaking to this mm. morning. Cause partly because like I might have been there anyway. I often am, you know, I see the echoes of what I've learned about coaching in, in some of the parts of what you've learned about coaching, but knowing like having the book in mind, because knowing we were speaking, it it really brought that in. So you get those, mm. you get those ripples and that sense of the depth. And the other reason that to get it out is I keep uh like finding myself, because I do work with coaches as well, like referencing it. And mm. like, I hope this is not too much. I sent a chapter of it to one of my clients because it was like, it felt like That's he needed great. to have that now. And I, yeah. I you know, I can't, I, so I can't wait for you to put it out to send it to this guy. He needs it now. And uh, also I can't risk that you never put it out. Like I've got to send it to the guy. So uh, <laughs> he's got that now. But, um, and I'll keep sending bits of it to people now that you've given me a nod to do that. But yeah, I, I just wanted to say that. Like, I really hope it, it does come out. It feels like it has something to say. And, and the other bit of reflection for me is it feels like, and maybe we need to talk a bit about it to land this for people. But I just got the sense I was reading it. It's like, oh yeah, this is a book that I don't know anyone else who could have actually mm. written this book. And that's yeah. not true of every book um, in the nicest possible way, including some really good ones and ones that I've enjoyed reading. But it's like, this does feel like we've taken two of the, the parts of Toku that are quite unusual, the, mm. the, the two and a half hour, uh, years in the Zen monastery and the which people need to go back and listen more to uh, the first time we spoke for, and the way that you've developed the um, the thinking about coaching and the way that you think about it. And then we get this Venn diagram with the bit in the middle, which is to some extent this book. And then I imagine the things that you'll, that will build around that as, as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so the book, which we're talking about, which I, you know, I've called, I've called the Zen coaching book. I've thought about naming it Zen and Zen and the art of coaching. Um, sort of classic coaching title. Um, the original title was the Samurai Coaching Devotional, um, but I moved away from the Samurai metaphor as I'd moved away from the Samurai Coaching Dojo, which was a, a program I used to run. Um, the book has sort of these three promises, which I think you're sort of speaking to. So one is this promise that, um, and I had to reflect on this, like what are the promises of the book and am I delivering on that promise? So one is, you know, the, the book is, um, if you read it, you'll be inspired about coaching and being a coach, right? And I, one of the conversations that I see a lot of people having in the coaching space is sort of like, it's sort of this apologetic, like, or embarrassed about being a coach. Like, you know, there's crappy coaches and the coaching industries fly by night, fly by night. And to me, coaching is this beautiful, sacred calling. And so part of the promise of this book is that you'll be inspired about being a coach. Um, the second promise is that you'll be a better coach, right? You'll be able to show up on calls more powerfully. You'll have a better understanding of what sets the very best coaches apart from everyone else and discover new ways of looking at coaching. And then the third promise of the book is that 
it'll be a resource you can come back to again and again when you feel stuck, unsure, and uninspired. You can pick it up and open it to any chapter and just be present to the power of coaching again. And so, um, and it's interesting because I I modeled the book off of what are what are my favorite books, which are these books of sort of meditation. So like um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi, or When Things Fall Apart by Payment Children, or Everyday Zen by Char- Joko Beck, which are really collections of Dharma talks. It is, it's like these little 31 little meditations on coaching with a practice that you can use that day in your, in your coaching work. And so, um, I love hearing your feedback on the book because that is exactly what, like what you did, like, oh, this person needs to read this chapter. That's exactly what I want people to do with the book, both for themselves and for other people. So that's the, that's the kind of book I'm trying to create. And it is this real fusion between, um, Zen Buddhism for me in particular, but on kind of in a broader sense, like spirituality and what is the spiritual journey of coaching? What does it mean spiritually and um, purposefully to be a coach and the craft of coaching and where those two really meet? And um, it's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart and a topic worthy of me going back and making sure the book is the best it can be and really launching it with with all the energy I can put behind it. Because I agree with you, it's not a book that I have not read other books in the coaching space that are like this. And that's why I created it. Yeah. Yeah. And it does, does have that feel, you know, like I, um, I highlighted a bunch of things as I was reading and I highlighted a whole chunk of the bit about calling because mm. it's like, that was kind of one of my biggest highlights. Cause it kind of really spoke to that thing, which, you know, it's like, it's actually quite hard to, I find it quite hard to remember. I think that's what you're speaking to really. And you talk about finding it hard to remember sometimes as well. I think in the book, like just mm. that that connection to that amazing mm. thing that it is and can be mm. and how it can, it does feel like it fits with, you know, the comparisons you make with the spiritual paths in the book mm. and now. Mm. Um, and I was, I'm glad you explained that about how the book's written. It has that feel. It made me realize I don't know that I've ever, like I, I must've, perhaps through my parents, perhaps I've got or read them somewhere, but those those kinds of books, I haven't read those ones that you mentioned, but I could feel that that was what it was like. I knew enough about those books to be like, I can really mm. feel how this is, this is but that at once, you know, those those books about, the, the Zen books, if mm. you like. And and I think the Zen coaching book is, a, is actually a really good title. So I don't think <laughs> you'd like, you know, I, I guess my thing is um, like, just get it out. That's my, you know, that's the 12 yeah. thing, right? That's the pra- thing that I've been practicing now yeah. for, for seven years or whatever. So when I see that and I get like uh, excited and I get a bit edgy about, I get excited when there's something great and I get a bit edgy when I hear the like, the little tendrils of what if this is going to take another three years to, I don't think it is for you, but like I hear it with people sometimes. I'm like, well, you need to be really careful about this. Like, yeah. it's not out, you know, if you, you know, don't, basically the, the game is always like, uh, Here's what I would say to you. My feedback would be the Zen coaching book is easily a good enough title. So like, mm. if you don't have another better one by January or whenever, whenever the, the deadline needs to be, that's good enough to go. Um, before we go into the book further, which we might do, I've got a couple of thoughts about ways we might do that. Um, I just want to slow us down a little bit on, again, on that kind of body of work question mm. on the book question on this discovery you've, been talking about about creativity and and, and mm. art i think just to kind of ask a purpose question really and this partly mm. comes because um alex swallow who i think is a member of my coaching community and also who, who i think has been you said you've been speaking to about about the book 
so the the coach's journey community for people who don't listen who don't know certain members of it can ask questions of guests and so you know people are ex- excited that you were coming on and alex had a question really about how you think about purpose right now mm. and i you know i'm aware i was aware listening to you speak two years ago and then reading the book i got these two different snapshots both of which have echoes of the of an answer to that question and i just mm. wondered in in this moment and as you think about the body of work and the things you're working on now how do you think about that idea of purpose for you? I mean, I think it's really important for all coaches to be able to answer the question of why, why are you coaching or why, why are you a coach? In the program I run, that's one of the first things we address, this like, why are you a coach? Because people often have a felt sense of it, but their ability to elucidate it or share it is limited, you know? Um, and well, then also often- we wanna, Also, we want to catch the, sorry, one of the bits I had highlighted about in the calling which is really lovely is um <laughs> uh, a masterful coach uh, this is i'm slightly paraphrasing a masterful coach understands that coaching is more than a side hustle a path to personal wealth and fame or a lifestyle business that involves working from exotic beaches and posting on instagram hmm. and i think there's that's a really important thing to be saying it's like it's, it's a bit funny but it's like we get people sometimes who kind of accidentally end up here because of that promise i think so to slow down and ask that question and really answer it, like that's a really powerful, powerful thing to do. Yeah. You know, and I realized about two years into my coaching experience that um, I noticed myself complaining a lot about the coaching industry. And then I realized I was like, well, you know, of all these, first of all, like the coaching industry is not unique in that like there are people who are famous who are kind of, you know, shallow and don't do great work and people who do great work and aren't successful. and you know, that it's over monetized and over marketed. I'm like, please, please point me to the industry that is pure, right? Maybe if you're a monastic, right? Of course, then there's like teachers have sex scandals. So, you know, so I'm like the coaching industry is just, it's it, it's human beings. So human beings are going to do with anything what they do with coaching, right? Some people are going to exploit it. Some people are going to be manipulative. That's just human beings. So can't get upset about that. I mean, you can, but Why? But then when I really thought about coaching and people who become coaches, what I really felt into was that I think the overwhelming majority, in fact, almost maybe 80, 90% of the people who become coaches, there is this I, impulse to help people. Like I want to do something that helps people. And often that's that's helping people directly. Right? A lot of the times when I, I, t- I talk to people about why they became coaches, they'll talk about you know, having a job where they're helping people really indirectly, or they just don't feel like their work is very meaningful. And people find their way to coaching because they have this impulse to help people. And so for me, there's always a question of like, as coaches, why aren't we talking about that? Instead of complaining about, you know, it's so, coaching is so BS and people don't believe me when I, you know, I don't want to say I'm a coach because it's embarrassing. When you tell people you're a coach, you're saying, you know, I have chosen a life path where I put my attention on helping people. That's incredible. You know, like, wh- why don't we honor that? Why don't we treat that with some reverence? And so, you know, for me, when I think about purpose, I I start to think about, like, how do I bring reverence to these things? You know, how do I bring this, this deep spiritual depth to those things? And, and I, this transition that I've been making recently from what I've been calling my badass boss era from coaching to my gentle, passionate artist era is about finding reverence. You know, I, um, I've run a very successful coaching practice for 
six, seven years now. I don't know. I, I used to like say like I've been coaching for three years for like five years. I said that I'm like, oh, that's probably not true anymore. But I, I built a successful coaching business pretty quickly. And then I, I did get caught up a bit in this, like, I got to scale. I got to grow this thing. I got to become more successful and, you know, should be a million dollar business. And, and then I realized that that wasn't very satisfying. I actually realized that kind of during the pandemic was like, I was like, oh, this isn't, this kind of hustle thing isn't really satisfying. And so what, what would be satisfying for me? How do I bring the reverence back to this? And for me, transitioning now to this phase of focusing more on artistic creation or making cool shit for the world, that um, that is my way of bringing reverence back into the work that I do. You know, and and it's it's easy for me in my coaching sessions to bring that reverence, right? My my purpose, which I have a story about this in the book about how this purpose came to me, which I'm happy to tell. But my purpose is to serve those walking the path of awakening in a deep and fundamental way. So that's my purpose. And so, and then what I, the way I live that purpose is I'm asking the question, how can I support people walking the path of awakening in a deep and fundamental way? How do I do that today? Right. And in a coaching session, that's easy to answer. It's being present with the person I'm with, pointing out their context, showing up as powerfully as I can. But in this larger question, I realized on my career as a coach that I kind of had lost my path in that. And then I sort of started being like, I want more status. I want more profile. I want to make more money. And I started to ask that question again. Okay. How do I support people? And what started to come through was, okay, now is the time of my life to make art, to make, to write these books, to create things that exist beyond the moment to moment conversation with me. that can invite people onto that path. that can serve them on that path. that can sit on their shelf and they can pick it up. And part of that for me is because those artifacts have, have been that for me. Those books have been that for me where I, I go back to them again and again and read them and reflect on them. And, and, and it reminds me like, right, this is what the path is about. And so from, you know, purpose is not a, not a one-time thing. I mean, my purpose is that purpose, but it's this thing that has to be tended to and renewed again and again and again and examined again and again and again. And it can change, you know, and it can you know, your purpose as a coach can be a certain thing. And then that purpose dissolves for a period of time. My purpose as a coach was to build a six figure business. And then I did that and I'm like, okay. And then it evolved. Right. And it would have been easy for me to go, okay, now it's half a million dollars, a million dollars, $2 million business. You know, I'm Daniel Laporte, I'm Tony Robbins, but I realized that that, that sort of upping the numbers again and again, it didn't, didn't do a lot for me. It wasn't what I was being called into. So, um, I guess that's my answer for what purpose means to me right now as a coach. Yeah. It's a great answer. And maybe I think, I feel like it would be, I feel like it would be really lovely if you could tell, say something about how you came to that. Cause it's, it's one thing to hear somebody else saying that. And it's another to understand the journey that it took or the, understand the journey that we might have to go on, I think mm. to find one for us. It's funny, the story was not originally in the book, and I just rewrote the second chapter, which is called The Mind of a Coach, and I put this story in there. Because <clears throat> that chapter is really all about the patience and courage you need to have. I, it's a completely rewritten, rewritten chapter, so you would not have read it yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I reworked the first two chapters of the book completely. Um, you know, for me, the mind of a coach is 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 this mind that has this patience and this courage to uncover the thing that creates a shift. And it's the ability. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's the third chapter. It's or yeah. Oh, no, it's like the sixth chapter. It's the gap chapter. I'm just remembering the chapter. 
It's a chapter on the gap, which I'm pretty sure you have read. Yeah. So I put this story into that chapter because um, there's three parts, three chapters in the book that are sort of about the coaching conversation itself. So it's, you know, what what would you like? What is what something you need to discover for a coaching client? What's in the way? And then the gap and the power of the gap is sitting people in the gap. And so I tell this story in, in that in that chapter of the book because it requires incredible patience and courage to sit in that that liminal space with people as they're sort of being and becoming the thing they want. So it was about, I was about a, it was in the monastery, been there for about a year and a half. And every year in January, we did this retreat called the, the life vows session, the life vows retreat. And it was a combination of meditation. And then also it was like, I don't know, like a workshop on life purpose. So we would do exercises and there were discussion groups which was interesting. You know, most retreats at the monastery are completely silent. You only talk to the teacher. And so we would do periods of meditation and then journaling and then little discussion groups. So it was this kind of moving in and out, a very different style. So I went through that process and I didn't, I didn't have an answer to that question that felt satisfying to me. What's my life purpose? And so as I often do, I became very determined. I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out the answer to this question. And, and part of why it ended up at the monastery in the first place, because I didn't know the answer to this question. I, you know, I studied philosophy in college, thought I wanted to be a philosophy teacher, didn't really like that, moved back to Nashville, ended up getting a job in the music business, which I worked in the music. I had a whole career in the music business for eight years before I became a coach and got really tired of that. It wasn't really that satisfying. And then moved into the monastery kind of because I didn't really know what I was supposed to do with my life. So this question that I started asking or working with was one of the questions that led me to live in the monastery in the first place. So I started working on the question in the way that you do in Zen practice was I just started sitting with it. So I started breathing in and meditation. What is the purpose of my life? You know, what am I here for? These questions. So I breathe it in and then I would exhale and different things arose, different things arose. And what happened was as I started practicing this question, I, I entered in what long-time meditators will sometimes call a meditation desert. So if you if you haven't been a long-time meditator, just like anything else, like, you know, if you've ever worked out or learned a sport, there's a period of time at the beginning or in the middle where you like, things are interesting, you're discovering things, there's a lot of insight, and it's kind of exciting, right? It might be hard, but it's exciting. But if you meditate for long enough for periods of years, you reach these periods of time where it's sort of like not interesting anymore. Like sort of nothing interesting is happening. Like all the thoughts you see are all the thoughts you've always seen. And the insights you get are like the insights you've gotten before. And so it's kind of boring, right? It's this kind of plateau. And so I hit this real, it was probably the longest meditation desert I'd ever experienced at the time. So it was like six months, I think, of just like dry, crunchy meditation. Not a lot of insights, nothing new coming through, Um I think at that time I was doing a bowing practice. So I was doing a bunch of bowing, kind of nothing coming through. So it was just this total grind. And I tried different things. I read books about vocation. Um, I read a book called Voice of Vocation. I did exercises and it just, it, like, it didn't seem to matter. Like it was like, as soon as I got close to something, it's like I would reach out and it would just slip through my fingers every time. And I finally like, I got, I mean, I got defeated. I got angry. I finally just like completely, I felt like I was never going to come to an answer. I felt completely hopeless. And I remember getting to that point and there was like, it was like this week where I just like, I kind of gave up. 
I was like, there's just no way I'm ever going to get an answer to this. But what was interesting is that I didn't stop practicing, right? I said, okay, I'm, I'm giving up, but I kept practicing. And, it, you know, it's interesting. There's this chapter in Zen and the Art of Archery, which is a, a beautiful book on Zen, where kind of similar thing happens where he kind of gives up. He's like, it's just pointless. I'm never going to learn how to shoot the arrow in this particular way. Something in me relaxed. And I remember sitting down um, to Zazen. It was, I was by myself. I was practicing by myself. I think it was during a retreat um, or maybe in between sessions at the monastery. I sat down and started practicing. And then all of a sudden this thought bubbled up, which was your purpose is to serve those walking the path of awakening in a deep and fundamental way. And when it happened, I was like, who said that? It was like, who said that? Because it wasn't me. Right. It wasn't um, it wasn't me. I don't know how to describe it. It just wasn't me. It wasn't a thought that I was used to. It wasn't the voice didn't come from a place that I was used to hearing from. It was unfamiliar in a way that surprised me. And there was a truth to it that my rational mind couldn't object to. Right. And part of the challenge of being a philosopher, or studying philosophy is that Western philosophy is all about picking ideas apart. So any idea I'd come up at that point, I would come up with the idea and I'd pick it apart. And this comes happens a lot with art too. You come up with the idea and you pick it apart. But there was something about the way that this arose to me where it felt untouchable. And I became very clear that like this was my purpose in life. And, you know, it didn't resolve everything for me, but that moment was so transformational because of the place that it came from. And, you know, it's interesting, a lot of what I do when I create or create art is I'm, I actually am trying to get back to that place a lot because there's a way in which when I write or read my writing, I can feel that it comes from that place, that it's it's me, but it's not, it's coming through me. It's not me. So that's that's the that's the story of how I came to my purpose. That's a great story. So much in there. Yeah, I think a lot of people would, I can certainly kind of, so, uh, I don't know whether, like, I don't know anything about writing hits from a popularity point of view, hmm. but what you said makes me think, remember, I do know something about writing hits from a, like, uh, whatever the, the point of view is that really matters, that isn't that, which is hmm. when that's happening, almost inevitably, the thing that's been written by me, but not really hmm. by me, is something of a quite different quality to the things that are written like by me and by me. Hmm. And so that that practice of looking for and occasionally sometimes in the right way with the right prep finding that that's um yeah that's quite something isn't it? I mean it's interesting I I I'm a bit nervous now to be like I don't think that experience of discovering purpose is normal. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that it's okay if that's not how you come to your purpose. I, I remember hearing an interview I think I actually heard about an interview between Bob. There was a conversation between Bob Dylan and um, the guy who wrote Hallelujah. Oh, Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen. And they were talking about two of their hit songs. So Leonard Cohen was talking about Hallelujah and Bob Dylan was talking about some song that he'd written. I can't remember what it was. And Bob Dylan said like, you know, I, he wrote the song in like 10 minutes. Just came through. And Leonard Cohen was talking about he'd worked on Hallelujah for 10 years, you know. And so, and it's interesting in this book, I've got chapters that just came completely wholly through fully came out. And the, the version that's in the book is, you know, there's, there's grammar tweaks, but essentially the chapter's just full the chapter on awe. I don't think I've changed it at all. Maybe a little bit, but it just came through. 
But then there's other chapters that I have worked and reworked. And I don't, I don't have it as a thing as an artist. I don't have this as a coach either, because this is true also as a coach. Sometimes I have sessions that are like that, where it's just like, it's perfect. And sometimes I have sessions where it's just a grind. Like I do not feel on it at all. But I have started to relate to my own work, both as a coach and as an artist, that they're both good in different ways. There's When I read the chapters that came through, there is a beauty in that transmission that I love. And then there are chapters that I have reworked and fought for. And I love the beauty of those chapters as well. And they feel different, right? You know, there's a part of me that kind of wants the latter chapters to feel more like the former, but there is something about struggling and fighting with your art or struggling and fighting with your coaching that's meaningful. And so I used to have a hierarchy of like, it's only the stuff that came through, but then I found like, well, I only wrote when I felt inspired or things, mm-hmm. you know, and that doesn't always happen. And I've started to realize like they, they have a value both for myself. And I think for the reader or the, or the people who can consume what we, what we create, they have a value. They both have a value and I have to treat both of them with reverence. Right. Cause it's easy to say like, well, you know, I did all the sitting and then, you know, but there are other questions I've worked on in meditation that have not come through that clear, but they're still as powerful for me. They're still as valuable. Maybe they don't make the stories not as good. Like, you know, I wrote this thing and I, you know, nuanced it and edited it 500 times to get it good. The story may not be as exciting, but to me, they're both powerful in their own way. Yeah, and it's interesting that I'm kind of catching myself. I think I'm, I think I like I'm catching myself doing the thing that, that in my story about Neil Young earlier on, he's doing, right? Which is in a way, uh, the through me creations, the things that have just kind of emerged, um, do feel like I don't, I, yeah, same as, same as what you're saying about your coaching. They do feel like objectively better. I would say like, it's a, it's mm. an experience that I prefer for all kinds of reasons. Mm. Um, and like I've written ones, which, you know, like let's not sneer at popularity. Like I'm aware that I was just almost doing that a little bit there. Like I remember writing a thing that I just, I thought it was quite a dull article about my, how I thought about my mornings mm. and it like, it was really meaningful for, you know, a lot of people in the, my scheme of things, which is not a lot of people, but a lot of people. And yeah. it's like, when I go back, what's interesting is with that frame, when I go back to that one, I can really see why, because I, I can mm. see the ingredients in it. I can see the kind of like um, the, the kind of rigor or the thought that, that, that made it what it was, but it's maybe not quite the rigor and the thought. I have to think about that more, but you know, yeah, you're, you're, it's it's nice to catch that and to think about those two sides. And it's also nice because it also feels important because, um, you know, if you want to be of deep and fundamental service to those walking the path of awakening, they're going to be in different places at different times. And yeah. some of the service we need is the kind of hard thought, hard fought, tweaked, fashioned piece. And sometimes we need that message from who knows who? Yeah, you know, I think for me, there's um in those ones that just come out perfectly, there is a bit of ego, right? Yeah. Sort of like I feel touched by till touched by God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's lovely. But like, just catch it. Like, there is some of that is because that's what it feels like, right? Yeah, but maybe 100%. that's what it is, right? Yeah. And then there's the ego to to like. That's yeah. what it feels like for me, anyway. It feels like there is an aspect of prayer to that to that right yeah to, to hearing something like who, we said before who said it and then there's yeah there's an ego which is like that's cool <laughs> yeah well i think that it's you know can we honor both types of prayer can we honor, honor both types of coaching because i in some ways the coaching i'm the most proud of is the coaching that's grinding 
And the writing that I'm the most proud of is the writing that's grinding. Because it is the thing that's calling forth something for me that isn't just effortless, right? That does require work. I mean, I remember I had this, I had this client recently who was a coach. And it was like every three months, he would be like, there's something wrong with the coaching. And um, I don't know if you've ever had a client like that, but it's it's hard. And like, literally, I'm like, I'm giving my best. Like, I don't know, dude, I'm giving my best. But he, he so he wrote me this email. So, you know, we need to re-examine the coaching. I feel like something's off. You know, it's the eighth. We were, I worked with him for a couple of years. Eighth, ninth email like this, I've read, I've read again. And I noticed my like desire to get frustrated. And instead, I just was like, okay, I'm going to be curious. And so I wrote him back and I say, you know, I said, well, it could be this and it could be that, you know, some things we talked about before. I pointed out like, hey, I notice this shows up every now and again. So maybe this is a thing that just shows up. And I'm really excited to discover what what would make it exciting for you, what would have you be engaged. And he wrote me back this email being like, oh my God, this is like a textbook email of like how a coach should respond to a dissatisfied client. Like it's, that's the thing, you know? And so it, it reminds me of the four agreements, right? You know, don't take things personally. I just like didn't take it personally that he wasn't excited. And, but it was, I felt so good about that, not because I like knew the perfect thing to say, but I was just sort of like, okay, well, all there is to do to say is to say yes to the work, is to say yes to what's showing up and to be with it. And so, and I've had a lot of moments that with like, I do not feel like I'm doing it perfectly and do not feel like I'm saying the right thing. I am like, you know, crawling along the floor, feeling for the cobblestones. Like that's what I'm doing. And I feel really proud of that kind of coaching work because it requires tremendous humility. It requires tremendous dedication, tremendous devotion, tremendous practice. And, you know, I mean, if all my coaching sessions were just like, everything I say is like, you know, gold dripping from the mouth of God, I mean, great. I mean, that'd feel cool, but it it wouldn't be satisfying in a way that wouldn't be enough. You know, it wouldn't be me. I wouldn't feel this human experience, which is beautiful, which is to struggle and fight for something meaningful. And I think that that's an experience that's so important to embrace both as a coach and as an artist, because if you don't, you know, you write one book that may be, be perfect. And then you don't want to write another one because how, how do you recreate that? Right. How do you show up again to that? And I think instead, if you can relate to it as like, I'm going to love when, when, when God is in the room with me and speaking through me, great. I'll put it on paper and be in awe of it. But if I'm alone, right. And maybe God is a little bit of light shining under the crack of the door. I'm going to sit down and, and show up anyway. You know, and as a coach, our clients don't get to pick, right. They've chosen to be in relationship with us and we can't say like, Hey, sorry, I'm just not feeling, I'm not feeling it today. Good luck with whatever problem you have. We got to show up for people. We got to show up for people. So they don't get to pick. And so we, we shouldn't get to pick either. And so can we show up to our work at, in art and in coaching with this dedication of, I'm going to be there for my client, whether it's I'm crawling on the ground, feeling for the cobblestones, or, you know, I'm backlit, you know, standing on a mountaintop, <laughs> preaching the good word of transformation. Like, regardless, am I willing to show up and I'm willing to stand by my work no matter what? And I don't know 
you know, if listeners are like this, but it's been, you know, as that, as you were speaking there, and I could kind of just feel these moments from my coaching, you know, many, many, many hours over many years now of, of, of those sessions and how, you know, the, the not, sorry, the, the ones where you're, the, the cobblestone ones, not the mountain with the, the light shining behind us, right? Uh, yeah, they're wonderful but, moments. Uh, a lot of, a lot of coaches and it's interesting. So like when coaches are really new and I sh- this shows up a lot of my programs, coaches are really new. They like don't ever have those experiences. It always feels kind of crunchy. Right? right. And then they get a little bit better and then they start to have those experiences and then they chase them, which I think is normal. But I, I think I would just really, really encourage people. And I think it's true for writing as well. You first you write everything you write feels like crap. You're just like this awful. It's not any good. Um, but then you you write something you're like, oh my god, that was amazing. And then you start to chase it. And then there's this like, well, I don't want to share it if it's not that good. And that is such an easy trap to get into. You know, yeah. And it's, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it's a, you know, of course it is. It's a um, tension or a polarity or two things that need integrating. You know, mm. like I just it, you know it is once you've discovered those sessions that feel like you know, um, you're doing something special or you're doing something at a new level. Like there is some truth to that. It's some truth about being in your strengths, being more present than you've been before, finding the kind of people that you do the best work with. It's like knowing those things, understanding them. And if you want to, creating those conditions more often, like wonderful. Also wonderful though, like, like you say, like when one of those people shows up on a day and you show up on a day and it doesn't feel like that at all, yeah, you don't say it can't be, you know, yeah, call me back on Monday, right? I mean, it could be, but it's like, oh, maybe that'd be a way that some people could work. But it's like the game is, you know, always feels like to me, it's like, here we are. And probably there's something about why we're like this today. I, that- I mean, I think, I think you, I think you limit yourself if you were to design a practice that way. Yeah. Because you're not being human with people, you know? And, and, and yeah, absolutely. Like, I know that I do my best writing in the morning. So I write in the morning. I know I do my best coaching when I get a good sleep, right? And breathe a little with my client before we talk. So absolutely, you want to create the conditions to have those sessions where things feel like they're effortless and powerful and meaningful. But if you are unwilling to have crunchy sessions, if you're unwilling to have sessions that you're just fumbling around and don't know what you're doing, I think you just incredibly limit your growth. And also it just makes it very hard to be a coach. Because <laughs> it's interesting. I talk to these coaches that are like, there's a way that you coach and it's so powerful. And over here, my experience is like, sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes I'm just like, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing at all. I, I don't know this question. Like my brain's like, I don't know this question. I don't know what's going on with this guy, you know? So, and on the other side, it can feel super powerful. Like you said, your blog post, it felt people got a lot from it, but for you, it didn't feel powerful. You know, and we don't know, like all we can do is show up. But I, I really feel like, and they're like, well, how do I do that? How do I do more of that? And one of the things I would say, and same with my writing, people are like, oh, you're such a good writer. And I'm like, I literally have just written for years. And I have written some great stuff. And I have lit- written some just really bad blog posts, really bad stuff. And I mean, I found old journals I wrote when I was in high school. And I was like, oh my God, it's so angsty and annoying. And, you know, so I've just... But there's a willingness, like I'm willing to create, I'm willing to do bad coaching. I'm willing to create bad writing. You know, the good thing about the internet these days is nobody remembers anything anymore. You know, write, write a bad blog post, you know, unless you're just like sexist or racist. So don't do that. But like, unless you're really offensive, no one's going to remember it probably. And so, you know, being willing, and I think it's true of coaching, being willing to do bad coaching. Now, don't try to do it. 
you know, <laughs> but but can you can you go out there and try and fall flat on your face and then say, okay, that was my coaching today, you know? Um, and I just read the read a four the four agreements again. It's like oh, four agreements in my head. You know, the, one of the four agreements is just do your best. But doing your best looks different in each day. And so I think if you're on this journey as a coach, if you're on this journey as a creative, or you're sort of in between, like I coach and I want to start writing, I want to create create things, you have to be willing to make bad art. You don't always have to publish it. I will say, like sometimes I write a blog post and go, that's not ready for public consumption. But I think you have to be willing to do that. And I think it's 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 important not just for you. But it's important for the world because when we show up in that human way, I think it's really a gift to others. Yeah. Yeah. And just to say, um, yeah, I love that reflection on what it's like in a coaching session, you know, where sometimes it feels like you've got no idea what's going on. And it's just like, I love that. Just to echo my own experience, or I, I can hear my, some of my own experience in that. So Tokyo, you said earlier on, I'm going to do a little gear change. You said earlier on that one of the things you wanted about the book, uh, one of the promises in it is that you can just turn to a page and see what emerges. Now, I don't have a physical copy of your book to do that with. So what I did was I went to Google ran, uh, Random Number Generator and asked it to randomly generate a number between 1 and 31. And we're going to uh, see what comes up when um, we slow down together into number 22. Okay. And I do copy. have a physical copy of the book. It's not yeah. the most recent version, but I... Oh, I just hold that up again so I can see it? Yeah. The old, don't ignore the title. The title's changing. Yeah. This is the cover of the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it looks great. looks great. Um, okay, so 22, can, huh? People can check out YouTube for that. So yeah, uh, if you've got it there, I wonder. I was thinking probably for... like, I wondered if you could just read the... What did you call it? The part at the bottom, the kind of the practice. Check yeah, this is keeping it fresh. A, yeah. I'm like... Um, this is in a way it's like it's beautiful because it's it's kind of what we've been talking about isn't it like I love it but yeah would you, well, I, I, I want to read that I'm not going to read the physical version of it because I want to read the um the, the new version of it oh yeah yeah I love because it. I changed it I changed it so hold on give me a second here let me look at the this one I think this one I edited a lot actually so I'm like um, let me pull the beta version so I'm doing that right now we'll have to we're, 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 we're vamping now this, yeah that's vamping. like that's this this show is fine it's like the same as the 12 minute <laughs> thing it's like we get some vamping everyone knows it's, uh, like uh, uh, you know coughs are left in or all that kind of thing I love that yeah I mean I think it's more authentic that way and it feels more like a conversation and yeah and, and it is also the I guess there's a to, to, let's let's do it let's see if I can do a a, a little uh, insight from what we've just been talking about in a way it's an equivalent of the crunchy thing right it allows mm. people to trust this show i hope because they know that basically if there are crunchy conversations they pretty much always go out and there are some conversations that feel like where i'm like i'm feeling more like we're completely present and there are other ones which don't and they pretty much all go out i think i, don't, I haven't not released an interview yet um yeah okay it's so funny because this is so i went through and read I rated all the chapters of the book. I gave this one a C. Which, uh, what, did, like, did the was C the lowest grade, or did you go down to C F? is the lowest grade? Yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, they all got A, Bs, or Cs. Yeah, yeah. My Fs wouldn't have made it into the number. Into, no, no. Into I mean, I thought all of them were at least. There was nothing that was an F. I, I got I all the Fs it. out of the book, so it's interesting. So tough, and this is so one of the ones you might edit it as well. So, but tough, you're going to forever immortalized is going to be the know, C grade um, thing. So, yeah, um, I, I mean, I kind of feel drawn to just read the whole chapter. They're pretty short. Yeah, Would you be okay? Let's do it. okay? Yeah, yeah okay, it. great. So this is day 22, keeping it fresh. And the, the current quote is, um, you must not fight too often with one enemy or you will teach him all your art of war by Napoleon Bonaparte. 
Coaches are people and people have preferences. Salty over sweet, chocolate over vanilla, silence over noise. What that means is without much effort on your part, your coaching will tend towards a certain track, and if you're not careful, into a rut. Part of this is simply your style. Just like you have a style of dress, outfit you tend towards, clothing you often wear. You also have a style of coaching, questions you like asking, context you often call out. The other part is your habits, the place you go because you feel comfortable or safe there. Great coaching over the long haul is a balancing act between these two, honoring and honing your style so that you can improve and innovate and challenge yourself and keep growing. And this isn't just a balance you need for yourself, but it's the balance the people you coach need too. Because the people you coach will get used to how you see them, how you reveal new insights, and how you challenge them. I remember this one client I worked with that drove me insane. At first, he loved my questions, he responded to my invitations, and he took on the work we did together. But slowly, he built up a defense to them. He would defend his choices, he would question my approach, he would complain about how he wasn't doing anything. And no matter how hard I tried, nothing changed. Then one day, I gave up. I stopped pushing him. I stopped challenging him. I let him complain and simply reflected what he was saying. When I did this, something amazing happened. He started to shift. He realized how stuck he was. He realized how much he was whining, and he started taking action again. So what happened? What happened was I, I was caught in a pattern with him. I'd push, question, and challenge, and he would resist. Even though he asked me to challenge him, to push him, to invite him, it didn't work. Instead, as soon as I gave up, aka, as soon as I stepped out of the pattern, things shifted. And this is important to remember. Your style is great until it's not. Your tried and true approach is great until it's not. As you coach, it's so important to stay present and open, to learn to let your style go when it's not serving, to learn to relax and accept what is. It doesn't mean you should abandon yourself at the first sign of resistance, but it does mean that great coaching is the constant search for freshness. It's an unending commitment to discovering something new, even when it's not what you think it should be. And this is the little inscription or or practice part at the end. Today, I will remember to keep my coaching fresh and open. I'll notice when my style turns into a rut and find new ways to approach problems and opportunities when I coach. I will see if I can see each person I coach as new every time we speak and be open to a new way to work together. I will honor my approach while also learning to listen closely to each new moment. Thank you. What do you notice, Toku, in this moment? I noticed that I rewrote this chapter and it's better. Um, <laughs> it's so funny. I feel like it, it perfectly dovetailed on our conversation that we were just talking about, right? It's amazing yeah. how the and just to be totally honestly, if people listening who don't believe it, like I didn't, I knew I, I did the random number, number number generator before the call, but I didn't read the ch- check what chapter it was. So mm. I love it. Yeah. What else do you notice? What was it? Or what was it like to to read that aloud? I mean, it, to me, it really does speak to this humility that we need to have. You know, and I, for a lot of new coaches, they're discovering their superpowers, right? The things they do well, and we all have a natural proclivity, and it's important. I mean, clients come to me because they want to be challenged. You know, that's a really dominant theme in my coaching. 
And I don't have to do much to challenge people. Like I just, that's my presence. I just, my presence challenges people. And so I've learned to, you know, use that to my advantage to not overuse it. Right. I know like a little bit of challenge for me can feel like a lot for other people. So I've learned how to work in that style. Um, And I've learned when I have to let that go, right. When challenging people isn't the thing that people need. And what people need is encouragement or celebration or they're doing a great job. And, and so I've learned those times to let go of my style. And so, you know, if you're, if you're new, I think it's true of my writing as well. If you're new, it's important to understand what those strengths are. And if you've been at this a while, it's important to let go of those strengths, you know, and, and be willing to just try something totally new that's you know, normally I sit in a lot of silence. I'm going to talk more of this coaching session, or normally I challenge people. I'm going to send my whole session, just blasting love at my client. Like it's really important to keep, to keep things fresh because it's one, it keeps you a much better coach, but two, it keeps coaching itself really fresh, right? It keeps the experience of coaching really fresh. And and I, I think that's one of the reasons why I I've had moments of getting bored with coaching, but I, they don't last long because I'm all, I'm kind of always reinventing it, you know, and it, I think it's so hard when you're trying to get to like, I just want to get good to have someone who's good tell you like, oh, you got to keep reinventing it or it's endless. But there is a, there is a truth to that. The, the coaches that I know that are the best always reinventing what they're doing. They're always playing with new things and, and they know how to use their style skillfully, but they're willing to let it go. And so it's um, what I love about this chapter and so many chapters of the book. Are there things that I am, con- these are things that I'm practicing. You know, I'm constantly working how to keep my coaching fresh and how do I try new things and what, you know, what new books can I bring in and what can I try? And and some of it sticks and some of it doesn't, but it's, it's a practice that I'm engaged in all the time. Mm. Let's do another. Let's We're do, do another one. Yeah. I love it. Let's okay. do the next number that came up was number 17. Uh, which in okay, my great. One, I think this got like a B minus, <laughs> which is my one is, yeah. Is this for you selling water by the river? Is that the same? Selling water by the river. Yeah. This is some people's favorite chapters. It's so funny. We're hitting all the ones that I need to rewrite. Yeah. Um, okay. Good. Again, I love it. Cause that means we get the, we get the yeah, you're gonna get this lifetime recording. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Selling water by the river. <clears throat> for 40 years, I've been selling water by the bank of a river. Ho, ho. My labors have been wholly without merit. Japan Zen master Harada Sogaku. The other day I spoke to a coach who wanted to help people find a new career. She was worried because having gone on that journey herself, she knew that finding meaning and purpose in life wasn't as simple as brainstorming career paths, choosing one to follow, and then tweaking her resume to match. So I asked her, when you were seeking a different kind of life, would you be able to hear the truth you're sharing with me now? That the journey is complicated, nuanced, and challenging. She answered simply, no. But she went on. And even if I had, I would have gone seeking someone who offered simpler answers. Often the people you want to serve are looking for simple answers. They don't really understand what they want and what it's going to take to get there. They're peering out over the vast ocean, hoping to see a beacon in the distance that tells them which way to go. A beacon that says there's still hope and it's over here. A masterful coach understands that this beacon is just the tip of an iceberg sticking out of the water. And then underneath is a hidden mass that contains all the learning, struggling, growing and change that the person we're coaching needs in their journey, but isn't ready to see. 
They also understand that it's foolish to try and sell someone a whole iceberg when all they're looking for is that small beacon of hope and potential that pokes above the water. A masterful coach trusts that coaching accepts all motivations because the process itself transforms how people relate to what they want. That's why it's okay to focus on the part that people are looking for, even though you know the path contains so much more. If you allow me to mix my metaphors, the possibility in life is like a raging river. Anyone could come up to the river and drink the water, but most of us don't know how. The river seems scary and unknowable. Part of our work as coaches is to take the water and put it into a cup and offer it to the world. The water in the cup is no different than the water in the river, but in the cup, it's so much more approachable. Even better, a masterful coach understands how to place an inviting handle in the cup so it feels especially easy for their people to grab it and take a sip. This handle is an access point to the simple answers someone is seeking. Of course, the real answers are more complex. Of course, the work is deep and wilder than they can ever imagine, but the handle gives them a way in. A masterful coach knows how to share and talk about the first few steps of this journey in a way that invites people to take that first step. That may mean talking about how part of their work will be on resume building and working on interview skills, but they won't stop there. They will use the handle of the practical to open up the thirst-quenching power of meaning at work and a purpose in life. This is part of the art of coaching, learning how to make the ineffable transformational experience something anyone can pick up and learn to enjoy. And here's the inscription. Today, I'll meet my people where they are. If what they want is a small piece of what I know is possible, I will work with them to create that. But as I do, I will hint at the river, at the possibility of flowing water. I'll let them know it's okay if they can't see everything that's possible. It's also okay if they aren't sure if they want it. I'll practice sharing what I see, being patient, and trusting that when they are ready, they'll come to see the boundless source of water we all have access to. Mm -hmm. What do you notice about about that in this moment, about that? Um, What I notice is that gets really good about like two-thirds of the way down. That's the part I want to (laughs) keep. I want to change the story at the beginning. You can tell Toku's in editing phase of the book, right? It's like... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It's funny when I read this, I'm like, oh, this part's really good. So how do I keep this part? Um, It's interesting when I reread all these chapters, I can feel that there's a piece of that transmission that comes through in all of them. And I can feel the places where it comes through more than others. And so I can feel the 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 truth in this, you know, and I can feel that transmission in there. I am. Um, and it's funny, often when I read the chapters, I realize more what it's about. To me, this chapter is even more about kind of meeting people where they are and, and giving people that access. And I, I think it's so hard for us as coaches because we can see so much and and often more than our clients. It's dangerous to say that in some ways, but we can often see more than what our clients can see. You know, we can see that like, oh, this childhood programming is infecting them this way, or this is a pattern they're doing again and again. And it can be tempting to like, want to grab them and shake them be like, why can't you see this? You know, but people see things in their own time. Right. And so our job is not to, you know, be right about what what we see and what they can't see. Our job is to, you know, lead them, to lead them to access these things. And knowing how to do that through this, you know, taking the water and putting it in a cup 
and even better putting a handle on the cup so they can access it. That is really the part of part of coaching. And I think early on as a coach, I really thought all it was, was, you know, can I show, can I show people, can I wake people up to like life? Right. Can I like show them how amazing they are? And I, I did a lot of that. And I noticed some people would take that, but a lot of people would sort of see that possibility and then move back. And then I would get frustrated. I would get annoyed. I would get, you know, it was so hard to see them be present, the possibility move back. And then when I looked at my own journey, like that's what my journey was, right. You know, present the possibility and then limitations. I write a book and say, I'm going to publish it. And then I don't publish the book. And it's this very human experience of getting present to possibility and then moving back. And so much of my job as a coach is to be like, okay, where are they today? How, how can they access the possibility today? How do we meet them where they at today? So I can slowly start to get them present to the raging river of possibility that exists in life. And so it it's such a humble practice and and such a powerful practice and so important for me to remember to do again and again as a coach, because now I can, I can often see a lot more than what my clients can see of what's possible for them. And that doesn't mean that that's good coaching. You know, that insight is great, but the good coaching is having them see it um, and, and, and being with them on, on the journey, being able to walk with them. Even if I know what's 10 steps ahead, being able to go back to where they are and walk with them on, you know, step one through nine rather than trying to jump to step 10 and drag drag them with me, being willing and having that patience to go step-by-step with them. Um, It's just so important. And it's so important for me to remember again and again. Mm. I think uh, I'm really glad we did that. Like, I think if we had another two hours, we could do a few more. Um, (laughs) But uh, people can have to wait for the audio book, which you should definitely do, by the way. Um, 100%. When I did the beta group that I just ran, I did this where I read the chapters and then riffed. Yeah. Um, which helped a lot of that stuff actually is now going to get put into the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because often the riffs, I'm like, Oh wow, that was really good. I should have put that in the book. Um, but I have this part of the, I don't know if it'll be a paid bonus or free bonus or probably if I do the launch, it'll be, if you sign up, but where it's literally like a 31 day course where every day I sit down, we read the chapter together and then I spend a couple minutes riffing on it so that you can use the book like a 31 day challenge if you wanted to. Um, I did that for the beta group and they loved it and I love doing it. I mean, it's super it's amazing how when I read the book out loud, it feels different than when I read it in my head. And, and then I kind of get tapped into like, oh yeah, this is, this is what matters to me about it. So and I get really excited. And if anyone who's watching the YouTube, you'll see me get very animated. And <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But, but it's also, you get that sense. I think we, people listening will get that sense that uh, I've just kind of got uh, of that we could, you know, we could feel you doing it live, right? I mean, you could partly feel, you know, you when you reflected on them, you know, yes, you did some, I'm the author of this and it's not out yet. And therefore, you know, one of the interesting things will be when it's out, from my experience, a load of that stuff, it's, it's like wonderful. It's like, it, it feels a bit like actually, I'll get to what I was going to say before in a minute, if I remember it. It, feel, it has a little bit of the feel for me of getting married, of mm. like, uh, you know, once you've written the, before r- publishing the book, there's all this thought about like, sh- could it be better? Should it be better? I could do more editing. Should I? How much more is right? When do I have to let this go and do it? And and then it's out. And all of that pretty much for me just went. Mm-hmm. And a bit like uh, I, I talked, I'm not sure if I've talked on this show before, but the, the for me, the process of getting married was a bit like that. The engagement, I felt like the pressure ramped up. Mm-hmm. And then through the valve onto the other side, all those thoughts that were, 
is this the right thing to do? You know, all my stuff about commitment that was so present in the engagement was just gone, you know, most of the time. I mean, I'm a human. I'm sure there's bits of it that'll flare and things, but so I'm looking forward to you being able to, like, it'll be fun hearing you riff without that mm. <laughs> when you get to that. But also I just got that, like, you know, because it has that, um, because of what you said about these all being the things that you need to pay attention to and keep paying attention to, you could run that. Uh, you could either record that 31 day thing and let people do it, or you could run it into infinity in the future. And each time those riffs will be different and fresh and, like, I don't know if this is true. I, I would have, you know, my rational mind says in, in five years or 10 years, when you, if you read that, you'll be, you'll have new things that if you were doing 31 letters to a, co- a friend starting coaching, you would write some new things in there. But my suspicion is a lot, it, like reading it, hearing you read it, it does have the feel of uh, the Zen books in the way yeah. that these are, like, like you say, there's the depth in them that enables you to keep coming back uh, or enables yeah. me to keep coming back or somebody else. Yeah. No, I think, I think so as well. And I think that part of doing this last round is really honoring the the timelessness of it. And, you know, that, um, I think this is a book that I'll, I'll talk about for years in the future and send to people. And, um, so wanting to give it, wanting to give it my best effort. And it's been really fascinating to go through and analyze the book and say, what are the chapters of my favorite and why? And we sort of identified these, you know, not to formulate these three things that, it, so one is that, um, it has some sort of story element to it, typically about me, but not always. So it has the story element, it has a bit of me in it. Two, it's got a bit of poetry, has a sort of poetic element to it. And then three, that it has, that it's practical, that it's approachable. And the best chapters kind of combine all three of those things. Um, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry, there's a fourth one. The fourth is that it has a single strong idea. And it's interesting to go through me the book and I, I analyzing the chapters, the chapters that I don't feel as good, usually one of those three things is four things is not there. Um, the one that's the worst, the worst chapters are the ones that there's not a single idea. And so I've really, this last run, I've gone through the book and I'm like, I'm looking at the chapters that I've rated as a C. Um, and that's not like, I don't, just so people know, like, I'm not beating myself. I'm like, okay, this just doesn't, it's just not my best work. You know, I go back and I go, okay, what's the one idea? And almost a hundred percent of the time, if it's a C, there's not a clear idea or the clear idea is muddy. And that's my issue with this last chapter actually is like from about, Two, a third of the way down to the bottom, there's one clear idea with sort of this water by the river. But the top part, it's a little bit of a different idea, right? And so I go, oh, okay, this is good. It's good. I mean, I think it's good as it is. But if I could clarify it so the one idea comes through really more strongly, then it could be even better. And so for me, like it's a, there is a, there is like, it could always be better and the writing could always be better. But I've started to look at like, okay, well, what will have me say these chapters are done? And now I have a standard of like, oh, here's the standard I'm going against. And I think for for me, at least, that didn't even really arise until I got to the place of like, okay, I'm going to honor my art as art. And I started looking at launching and sharing the book as its own kind of expression of art. And so I said, okay, well, I have to set a standard for myself or a thing that I'm aiming towards and then work towards that. Until then, it was sort of like, it was always very piecemeal, the process. And, you know, it's interesting that's the way my coaching has felt as well, where, and I see this a lot with new coaches where it's every coaching session. I'm like, Did, was that good or not? Right. But there wasn't like a, here's, here's what I'm committed to showing up as. And when I started to set that standard for myself, like, did I show up powerfully? Did I, you know, was I present? Did I do my best? When I started to set that standard for myself, like, here's what I'm aiming for. And not, it's not a feeling. It's a way that I show up. 
or committed to showing up. When I hit that standard, whether the session was great or not, I go, okay, that was my best work. And when I don't, I go, okay, well, why not? You know, and sometimes, well, I didn't prepare or I got caught up in the client's story. And I analyze that and then I go, okay, I'm, okay, I learned from that. I'm going to keep showing up again. And it's very much the same way with the writing. And so I think there is this process that happens over time when you start to look at your coaching or look at your writing as, as art, where you can start to go, okay, here's the, here's the center of the target that I'm aiming for. And now I can shoot arrows again and again. Sometimes I'm going to hit that, sometimes I'm not, but I know at least what I'm aiming for. And so it's, what I've loved about, even though I know it's frustrating because I haven't published the book, what I've loved about this round of writing the book is that I finally am like, oh, okay, this, I now know what I'm aiming for and I can shoot for that and I can go, okay, well, I got close to this target. I can improve it. Right? I can move a few inches to the right. But I realized un- until I got to that place with the book, I don't know what I would have felt good about publishing it um because i didn't have the target and it only it only was through this process of examination and repetition and working with an editor that i started to realize like oh what i started to ask myself the question what does what is a good chapter of this book and now that i have that i feel like i can take that now to my other project okay, what 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 does make this good you know what what is about this that makes me go this is me and this is my art you know that i'm satisfied with it and it, that took me some time and some reflection to get there but I think it's super valuable. And I guess I'd be curious, like, do you have this experience with your writing at all? Or am I making this up? Or mm-hmm. I, I sort of am just discovering this as I'm saying it. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. Well, I think there's a few things in there. So one of the things that came that I was thinking as you were telling that story, you know, I had this question that I wrote down listening back to our last conversation, which is like, what are you practicing at the moment? Because you talk in that mm-hmm. last conversation we had, and, and, you know, I know you've written thought a lot about deliberate practice and, practice in different ways and I could kind of hear um I kind of hear uh, people listening might be able to do that as well if they, if they think that you're going to hear the way that you have applied those ideas about practice to this and what you've just given us a great example of it. it's like what am I shooting for and and then what um then how do I adjust to that and how do I see what I'm aiming for and where where I wasn't there and all that kind of thing and and, and I guess one of the interesting things so for me it feels like the really the well the 12 minute method books and the blog that goes with them that was all about really me practicing something quite different so it was never mm. about practicing writing this is a thing that you know that mm. um, is sometimes people kind of miss in that story but it was always about practicing can i make something mm. of myself from myself and share it mm. and that was the the hero's journey that was the the quest that was the the growth and so for me often the you know i the 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 medium that i did that through was writing Mm. but the the thing that i was paying attention to rather than what makes this piece feel like me was Mm. the 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 sharing move and the transformation that came from that so i'm not sure that Mm. that it's possible that i have also done that but as i was thinking then or as you said that it's like i think so Um, but it's interesting because it's like because you can do all those things at once and you have to do some part of all of them. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to do these things that you and I have done in different ways at different times, but you know, you're going to create a lot of, you're going to create a body of work and you're going to turn something of it into a book, you know, that that's going to be part of it. Then you have to do both those parts and probably some others. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just, I guess the question is, which bits are you emphasizing? You know, one of the things mm-hmm. that I was thinking about when you were talking then about the sea the C grade chapters is I, I just I, I'm not sure I could name them, 
probably good if I slowed down enough. Occasionally, I'll be just like listening to an album, going back to the, the start of this conversation, and I'll think, why did they leave this song on? Mm. You know, really? Like, couldn't it? You know, or like, you know, you'll, I hear a line, especially if it's a one of the you know musicians I love for whom the lyrics are such a core part of it. Sometimes I'd be like, wow, uncharacteristically, these these like three lines here, they're quite cliched for you. Like, mm. why did they stay in? And, you know, I think it's probably just because they, you know, maybe they were practicing something different or maybe we all have to abandon, you know, you can't have going again, going back to start the conversation. You never end up with a perfect, you wouldn't and would never want a perfectly uniform set of 10 hits on an album, right? You want the texture of them. And that sometimes means the, the C, the C grade little bit. Um, and, it's interesting to think about playing with like, I think for all of us, and it's probably, this is the phase you're going to get into, right? It's like um, in my in my book about sharing, I have this, I put this quote at the front, which always gets attributed to Mark Twain's or sometimes other people, but it's actually, mm. I think, as far as I can tell from the internet research, uh, a French poet called Paul Valéry. And he says in French, you know, to translate it into English is something like uh, for the, for one who is anxiously seeking perfection, a poem is never finished. It is only abandoned. Mm. So you're going to get into that phase mm. now of like, when do you abandon mm. these poems? Mm. Well, I guess I could stop seeking perfection, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. But I don't know that that's, I don't know. I don't know that that's the right move. I know that like perfectionism gets a really bad name, but there's some really good, like one of the things you do well, particularly, but but this is true for lots of people is pursue excellence. Right? Yeah. Is look for it. It doesn't mean you achieve it, and and you can let go of needing to achieve it. But pursuing it is something worth doing. Yeah, you know, I, I've read a lot of books that I've read a lot of books. I've read some books that feel kind of cranked out. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I, you know, I I think you know probably the first version of this book I kind of cranked out. You know, and and there is that tension between like, how long do I wait to publish it? Can it always be, you know, cause I could always wait forever. Right. And I, you know, I always underestimate, I, I'm very bad at underestimating how long it's going to take me to hone things. But I think it is, I'm like, I, I want to write a really good book. And it's been interesting talking to book marketing people. They're like, well, what do you want to, how, how many clients do you want to get from this book? And I'm like, sure. I'd like to get clients, but I want to write a really good book. And I was talking to Jonathan Fields, who has a great podcast um, called uh, Good Life. The Good Life Project is a podcast. Mm. We were, I, I went to his camp a long time ago, and he lives in, in Boulder. So I visited him a few times and um, was at dinner with him. And he was talking about talent. He says, a great, this is a great thing about talent. He said, talent is a combination of two things. This is taste and skill. He says, you have to have taste. So you have to have a taste to know this is good or your opinion of what this is good. And then you have to have the skill to produce it. And I think when it comes to writing, I think I've got taste. I could be wrong. You know, like, how do you know if you have taste, right? But I think I have taste because when I read something, I'm like, oh, that's really good. Or like, mm, that's not so good. You know, so I have taste. And I, I, I really, through this book, have been honing my skill, you know? And so I, I don't know that it's ever going to be as good as, you know, I compare myself to other writers like, Leah Babata of Zen Habits or Seth Godin, or, I mean, or Suzuki Roshi, who's like a Zen master, right? It's like Pema Chodron, incredible writers. So I'm like, I don't know if it'll ever be that good, right? As good as I think those writers are, 
Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Maybe it is as good, but it's impossible for me to see, right? Our relationship to our own art is always complicated. Because um, it's, it's funny, people always are like, oh, I love the sound of your voice. And I hate the sound of my own voice. I mean, I don't hate it, but every time I listen, I'm like, oh, it's so nasally and I talk too fast. People are like, oh, you have such a soothing voice. I'm like, well, who are you listening to? So I think there's a bit of that that going on. But at the same time, you know, even though I'm like, I don't know if it's it can be as good as that, I'm like, I feel like I know how good this book can be, and I'm committed to that goodness. And I think that it's I'm close, and I will have to say at some point, okay, it's good enough. But it's been interesting to see the changes in the drafts or the last two to three rounds. And it was good four drafts ago. Most people would have published the book four drafts ago. But now when I read the updated chapters, I go, no, this is it. This is, you know, especially I rewrote the first two chapters of the book recently. And I'm like, these chapters are, you know, maybe they're small changes, but to me, they're 10 times better than the previous versions. And not that I can't hone the words or anything, but there's, there's a truth to that. There, it is much more, it has a single idea. It's got a story. It's poetic. It's got this meditative energy in it. I'm like, yeah, it's, it is what I want this book to be. It is the standard with which I'm aiming at. And What's amazing is that the, my artistic process, and I think also the process of becoming a coach is you have to discover your own standard first, which can be anything. Like your standard was, you know, can I trust myself to create something and put it out? That's a standard, right? That's your sort of like, you know, the, the thing you're aiming for. You have to discover your own standard and then you have to live up to it. And that's so challenging because what we want from the world is like, you know, tell me what the what to, what score do I need to make on the test? I'll make the score, right? Or tell me what is successful and I'll do that. But it's so much more powerful when you develop your own standard of like, this is what I know is good for myself. And then I work my whole life to try to meet that standard. What a beautiful practice to be in. And that's what I want for myself as a coach. And that's what I want for myself as a writer. And that standard might change. My success in meeting it's going to change. But then it's really holding my art because I created the standard and I did the work to meet it rather than I'm trying to be as good as or look like someone else. When I do that kind of writing, it's fine. And some people like that stuff. But for me, it's the best when it's my standard and I'm trying to meet it. Look, it feels like a really beautiful place to begin to wrap up this conversation which as last time has 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 flown by mm -hmm. um we've talked a lot about your writing i'm curious how does your coaching business look and feel now and again just to, to date it i'm pretty sure uh, so when we spoke last time you were just about to create a new mastermind for coaches which yeah. I'm pretty sure is the probably the coaching MBA, which has now been running since then. Right? It. So it's like you you made it. Yeah, it's there. It's now I'm much more reliable to launch programs than I am books at this point. Apparently, yeah. I've had more experience <laughs> launching programs at this point. Yeah, it's like you know, sure. I'm sure once I launch the first book, it'll get easier. That's my experience. Yeah, it, it, definitely it, once. it definitely does. It definitely does. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How many books uh, have you read at this point? You have like four or five. I've or done four. Yeah, yeah, four. Okay, but good. but I've still but I like you have still got one that's um, been basically done for 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 years. Uh, what did we we accidentally okay or Siri something? We we uh, we we, uh, we activated Siri on my watch. 
So many guys, I was like, I thought I was in do not disturb mode, but only on my computer, not on my watch. So I love anyway. it. It's a great message from the universe to say, remember, Robbie, <laughs> we're nearly at a time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, but like you, I've got one sitting around that isn't out there, um, you know, which is mm. like, so it's, you know, it's easy and, and until it's not. But at the very least, like all the stuff that you're having to learn this time, every time you make mm. a decision about how, mm. what, 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 yeah, what your standard is, I guess, for publishing, like, what do you do? in that mm. some of that you don't have to do again um but yeah like tell tell just before we finish yeah how's your like what's what's exciting or what's going on in your coaching business now and how is the coaching mba which was just a twinkle it's in your great eye yeah we're on the fourth we're on the fourth we're on the fourth round um it's been hugely successful i mean you know like I think 80, 80 to 90% of the people have paid the program back while in the program. So that's great. I mean, that's not my standard of success, but that's great. People consistently say the community of other coaches has been the big thing. You know, the, the thing that I, I mean, I have a sort of, I have a, either have a style or a shtick depending on your perspective on it or how funny I'm moving it. Um, all the programs I've created, all the books I've created, they have this sort of like, um, what I want to do is put put in front of people the fundamental questions and help them answer those questions. I certainly have wisdom or things to teach and I do do that in all the programs. But to me the these fundamental questions you have about what it means to be a great coach, what it means to be a writer, what it means to be successful in your business, only you can answer those questions. And so this program like all the other programs I've done is designed to put those fundamental questions in front of people. And so I, I focus on these six areas of mastery that I think are so important for people. So um Purpose, why are you a coach? A commitment, how to create commitment in other people, which is essentially sales, right? When sales is sort of the commercial term for that, but creating commitment. Um, connection, how to create connection at scale, which is essentially marketing. Um, leader, how to show up as a leader in your own life and how to show up as a leader in your business. Um, time and money. So how do you manage time? How do you work with time? How do you use your time well? How do you manage money? How do you work with money? How do you use money well? And so I just, over the course of, it's seven months because I always take two months off a year, but it's a six month program. Over six months, we just look at those fundamental questions, you know, and I, there's writings every week and exercises. And, but what I really encourage people to do is take the stuff that is helpful for you, ignore anything that you feel like you've already mastered. But I just want to have people ask these fundamental questions again and again and again. And what amazes me about the program is that people, although it's not, a point of the program, people create clients in the program, a lot of clients, right? And there's a lot of like, you know, come to my program and create five clients. And that happens. What's amazing that it happens indirectly. I'm not like, here's how to create clients. It really is just through this conversation of like, what does it mean to be a coach? What does it mean to turn pro as a coach and run a really successful coaching practice? And my hope is that the lessons that people learn inside this program are not just useful for the next year or the next 10 years. Because just like the book, these are the six things that I am constantly working on forever. I'm not done with time or money. I'm not done with leadership or marketing or sales or commitment or purpose. I, those are things I'm just forever looking at in my business. So my I, one of my stated goals of the program is I'm not teaching for next year. I'm teaching for 10 years in the future. And so um, it's great. It's small program, six to eight people last seven months. And I'm the next round is uh, I want around a, I run a cohort in the fall and a cohort in the spring. So. Um, People are always, well, people still want to join in the summer. And I'm like, no one joins anything in the summer, dude. Wait, just wait. It's going to come in the fall. So anyway, that's the program. That's, and how do you think, um, and how, one of the things that I wanted to just 
you know, ask you about as well is how do you think these days about the work you do with coaches versus work you do with uh, normal people or, or whatever yeah. we whatever we might coaches call are them. Not normal people. And how do they? Yeah. No, models. absolutely not. Absolutely not. And and do, like, how does how do you think about that? And and how does the balance of your business look these days? It's interesting. More recently, it has shifted a bit more to working with coaches. Um, I'm committed to having both sides of my business still. I, I think it's important for me to be grounded in regular coaching work. I think especially because the coaches I'm working with are not primarily trying to build businesses coaching coaches. Um, I'm passionate about that work. I love talking about coaching, which is why I have that side of my business. Um, and I, I had moved pretty heavily into startups in the last year. And if you know anything about the world of startup, there's just been a big contraction. So I lost a bunch of big contracts. Um, it's funny. People have been like, you should have one focus in your business. But man, I was super happy because <laughs> I lost these huge, huge startup contracts. And we're talking like, like, like a 100K contract I thought was going to get renewed and it didn't happen. And so I had to figure out how to replace that revenue. It was like 10, 14K a month I had to replace. It's a huge amount of money. And because I have this coaching side of my business, I was able to, I had some coaches that wanted to work with me. I was able to start working with them. So I think I only had two months where I was really in a shortfall. So man, I was glad I had diversified business. Um, so I'm still committed to doing both. I've had a lot of people like, just go all in on coaching coaches. And I, I just, I want to keep clients that are regular. Um, but I've, I've gotten a little more comfortable with, you know, I think that there's this like, oh, when you coach coaches, it's a pyramid scheme kind of thing. Um, I've gotten more comfortable with it because for me, what I, what I see is that I'm creating people to do work with people that I don't want to work with or that I'm not able to connect with. And so I've had my former clients now go on or my former yeah customers go on and, you know, do stuff in LGBTQ and HR work at other coaching schools or, um, you know, do training in for women in science. Right. And so those are areas that I would never be able to work in, never experience in, and to see them take the work we've done together. And I now even have my first former customer client who is now starting to coach other coaches and some of the stuff he's learned in his own transmission. So starting to see that spread out, I'm like, okay, great. I'm, I'm, I'm doing work that's meaningful. Because I think that as a coach, I have a responsibility to the industry to be sharing my perspective and my voice. Because, And I'm, I'm, I'm like, don't want to be too egotistical. I do think that the way I talk about it is different. You know, I don't, I don't think there are that many people having the coaching conversation I'm having about coaching. And so it, it feels important to me to keep doing it, not just to do it and have it on the side. And so I, I love both parts of my business and plan to keep doing both. Um, I might bring them under the same umbrella. I might move the coaching MBA website onto my main website. I'm looking at doing that just for simplicity, but, um, I love working with coaches, people who are committed to helping other people have incredible lives. Like, why wouldn't I want to work with those people? And coaches are super annoying. <laughs> so you wouldn't want to just work with those people. Well, it's, you know, the problem with coaches, and this is myself true, is that we've done so much work that the way that our, the way that we avoid doing the work we need to do becomes oh, very, man. very nuanced. We're like really good at avoiding important work because we have all this like, you know, transformational language to put around it rather than like, oh, probably you need to sit down and write the blog post or talk to the person, you know, well, I need to do this. I need to manifest it this way. And I got to do my writing before I do it. And um, so I, I love coaches. They can be really annoying to coach sometimes, but man, they're just incredible people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I think you do have, I agree that you do have a way of 
having conversations about coaching that are different to most of the conversations that are being had about coaching. And that's probably why uh, people got 80, on average, 80% through the last mammoth mm. conversation that we had. And hopefully mm. they'll do the same through this one. Um, it's been a total pleasure to, to have you back on the show. Before we finish, is there anything that we, that we haven't said um, or anything you want to share before we wrap up? No, if people are interested in the book, um, I did this last time. I don't think I did a great job of delivering on it. But if people are interested in the book, if they want to like join my street team or get like an early release, I'm going to do that whole like early release, buy a copy, post review on Amazon. So if you want to, if you want to do that, I, I do know one of the bonuses I'm going to give to those people is I will give this 31 day video course thing where I read through all the chapters of the book. So um, if you're interested in that, let me know. I'll put you on the list. I'll send you. I'll send you. I'll send you, you know, a short copy of the book or something if you sign up, but, you know, I'm probably a few chapters of the book like this, probably a few of these videos. I have all the videos recorded for the beta group, so that should be easy. Yeah. Um, so I'll send you a little smattering of those things. And then when the book comes out, you know, we'll, we'll have fun with it. So if you want to do that, that's great. And, you know, if you want to reach out, if you're interested in, in one-on-one work or coaching MBA, or you just want to ask me a question about something I shared, send me an email. Like I, people think, I, I think people think because I'm super busy they can't reach out to me, but I love talking to coaches and I love sharing my insights and I love answering questions. So um, it may take me a couple of weeks for me to get back to you because I am busy, but I, I pretty much get back to hundred percent of the people. Do not send me a message on Facebook messenger, please. I mean, <laughs> you can do it. I just may not respond very quick. I'm just really six bad at Six or Facebook seven messenger. years. You yeah. get a response from me. On Instagram Facebook. Messenger, I'm actually ironically better at. But Facebook Messenger, I'm, oh, yeah. I don't know why. I'm so no one messaged me on, on, on Instagram Messenger, for sure. Poor, poor, poor people who do that. Email, um, email. Yeah. I, I'm very reliable to respond to email. Slower. I'm slower on email, but I'm more reliable. Yeah, how funny. Exactly the same. We could do another podcast sometime about why that is. But um, in the meantime, Toku, best of luck with everything with the book. Um, it's been Thank a you. pleasure to have you back on the show. And yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure at some point in the future, as long as this keeps going, um, we'll we'll have a round three. Maybe we could do it when the book is actually out. We can read a few more chapters. Yeah, yeah. And I want to do a jam with you sometime just about your experience publishing books. Well, that'll be it. We don't want to record that one. We need to record that. But I'd love to talk to you sometime. Although we could. But yeah. Yeah, we so could. Much, I'll interview you and you can put it on your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Toki, thanks so much. It's been a total pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Hello, Robbie here again. A couple of quick things before you go on to whatever else you've got going on in the rest of your day. Uh, and that is, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then you might be interested in becoming a supporter of the Coach's Journey podcast or joining the Coach's Journey community. Both of those are ways to support the show, help it continue, help it reach more and more people, but they also give you other things that you might be interested in. If you become a supporter, which is paying a small amount of money every month, then you'll get advance notice of guests, perhaps the chance to ask questions of guests, um, depending on what membership level you have, and and more monthly video updates from me, all kinds of other bits and pieces. And if you join the Coach's Journey community, then you get all of that, plus you get to be part of a group coaching program led by me um, and attend group coaching calls up to 10 times a year, have one-on-one -on -one coaching with me and be part of a community of coaches who want to create thriving coaching businesses and thrive as people while they do it. And um, one of the members said recently that the word that keeps coming up in the members WhatsApp group is beautiful to describe those calls. And so um, I'd love to have you there on one of those calls. Um, and as a member of the community or a supporter of the show, it would mean the world to me and it helped me to keep doing this thing that I love to do and that many, many people have told me is really helpful for them. So thanks very much for listening and hope to have you back with us on the Coach's Journey podcast sometime soon.